0: This is the Longevity Biotech Show with your host for today, Nathan Cheng. Uh, We interview people who are building the technologies that extend healthy human lifespan. So um, today we have the privilege of having Marina Madrid on the show. So Marina received her PhD in physics from Harvard. Uh, She was also named a Forbes top 30 under 30 in healthcare. And uh, she is one of the co-founders of Celino. Uh, Celino is a Khosla Ventures-backed startup that uses AI, robotics, and uh, laser editing to develop and manufacture stem cell therapies at scale. So uh, welcome to the show, Marina. It's uh, our privilege to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
0: Okay, great. So um, I guess we'll just start off with some questions about the company uh, to begin with, and then later on, We'll kind of go back to the, the history of, you know, how you started the company and, and some mm-hmm. questions about, you know, just entrepreneurship in general so that uh, maybe other people who are listening, who are thinking about getting into biotech, maybe they want to start a company or join a company, uh, they can sort of learn from your experience. So um, I guess the first question I have is uh, what is Celino uh, and what is the problem that the company is trying to solve?
1: That is a great question. Okay, so Celino is a convergent multidisciplinary biotech company. And our goal is really to make autologous IPSC derived cell therapies economically viable and scalable for the first time, because as of right now, they're just not. So, to give some context for all of those different buzzwords. Um, Autologous just means that the cell therapy is derived from the patient's own cells instead of from a donor cell. And the reason that's important to us is because what that means is that the patient doesn't need to undergo immunosuppression, which has many associated uh, health risks. So it's important in terms of safety, but we were also really interested in autologous because of accessibility. If you're using allogeneic donor-derived cell therapies, it's very difficult to find a donor match for the more genetically diverse individuals in the population. I'm half Mexican, half Filipino. I think it would be really tough for me to find a donor match that would work for me if I needed a cell therapy. So that's another reason why we were interested in autologous because of safety and accessibility, which we care a lot about. And iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells, are remarkable because they have the code within them to generate any adult cell type in the human body. So they're an incredible platform for regenerative medicine. You can imagine making any kind of therapeutic cell type or cell types for cosmetic indications. So Salino's motto is actually every human, every cell, that every human refers to the autologous point. We're able to make cell therapies for any patient, because we're not relying on donor matches. And in theory, we have the potential to make any cell type. And in the future, we're hoping that's every tissue, every organ as well. Um, But that's the problem we're really focused on. Because, you know, IPSCs, they were discovered back in 2007, and Shinya Yamanaka got the Nobel Prize for this discovery. It's a very remarkable discovery, um, because it has such huge potential to be a platform for regenerative medicine. But the way that folks make IPSCs today is almost painful to watch. It's extremely manual, extremely labor intensive, it involves a very skilled scientist, and most cell therapy developers, if you talk to them, have their one favorite scientist in the lab that has magic hands and is great at this process. Um, So it involves this one very skilled scientist looking at the cells during this process, deciding based on their own expertise and experience, which cells look promising, which ones do not, and then physically scraping away any of the unwanted cells that do not look as promising. So as you can imagine, this process is very prone to operator bias. Um, If your most skilled scientist decides to retire or get sick, then you're in trouble. So it's obviously also not very scalable. And because it's not very scalable, it becomes very expensive to manufacture. So if you were to go out right now and try to purchase a clinical grade patient-specific iPSC line to start your cell therapy development, you would have to pay almost a million dollars per patient-specific IPSC line $2 million if you're buying from certain companies. Um, And that's just not economically viable. So what we're expecting is that by automating this right now, very artisanal process, we can bring down the cost of manufacturing a single patient-specific clinical-grade iPSC line to below $30,000 per patient. Um, and that's really what you need to do in order to make these therapies accessible to all of the patients who, who need them. Um, and the way that we're automating this process, so I mentioned that the process of generating iPSCs typically requires a skilled scientist looking at the cells, deciding which cells look good, which cells don't. We're replacing that human visual selection part of the process with image guided machine learning algorithms image the cells and characterize them based on those images. And we are replacing that physical scraping away of unwanted cells with laser mediated bubble removal of cells. So we have lasers that we can use to create bubbles underneath the cells and those bubbles literally just lift off the unwanted cells. Um, And that laser technology is actually what I co-invented with Nopiha Saklayan, the CEO back in our PhD days. So we've been working together since the beginning of our PhDs, almost a decade now, which is crazy to think about. Um, And that's that's our original technology is this laser-based manipulation method that relies on bubbles. And so that's how we're proposing to automate this process of generating IPSCs. The technology is actually, you know, relatively cell type and application agnostic, but we decided to focus on this challenge of making autologous IPSC-derived cell therapies because we think there's huge potential to alleviate patient suffering um, extend the healthy human lifespan and there's a massive bottleneck right now with regards to manufacturing that our technology is particularly well suited to solve so that's what our company does and that's the problem that we're focused on solving
0: whoa okay yeah awesome awesome yeah lots to unpack there i guess um yeah just coming from our point of view you know people in the longevity industry are super excited about regenerative medicine. Also, you know, iPSCs because, you know, the relation to reprogramming of cells, right? You're basically yeah. able to take cells and, you know, reset them back to basically the, the very uh, beginning stage or become to make them uh, youthful again, right? So this was like a huge deal. And, you know, that was not so long ago. I mean, 2007, like, you know, there's a couple of PhD students' uh, careers ago. So it, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's very it's new. Remarkable. And it's great that, you know, the stuff is coming out and, you know, becoming sort of, people are trying to scale this and create these at scale, just like, like you at Celino. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, I also really love the motto, right? The, uh, the, the tagline for the company, right? Every human, every cell. Whoever came up with that, you know, byline should get like a gold star. Because that is like the most, <laughs> yeah. the most like high, uh, high entropy, like maximal, you can't compress that, <laughs> you know, information any further. That's like, I exactly know what the company's about. And it's just like an amazing mission statement. So yeah, whoever came up with that. You get, Thank like you I so guess. much. Yeah, that was definitely the
1: stuff. work of our, um, our CEO in combination with our very supportive investors. And I also, I love that motto, every human, every cell, at some point in the future, it's going to be every tissue, every organ. I think it, it really captures the potential around autologous iPSC-based cell therapies.
0: Yeah, definitely. And yeah, trying to get you know the current cost from two million down to thirty k—that's like amazing. And um, of course, Nibia, like as you mentioned, your your CEO, she's amazing. I, I follow her on um, on Clubhouse as well. She does uh, a show on Sundays um, around I think it's in the morning uh, or early afternoon, and uh, yeah, just uh, the building biotech show with uh, Nibia. And also co-hosted by Jack O'Meara, and uh, everybody in the room should definitely uh, follow that as well. Um, yeah, so y- you were able to describe like the technology and like the, the use case. What's the problem that we're solving? Um, so uh, with Celino's uh, technology, doing uh, these um, sort of using lasers to uh, remove the cells. Um, maybe you could just tell me a little bit more about this technology. Like, uh, what what? What constitutes like a a bad cell? Like what is, what is the cell that you're trying to remove? Um, What do these lasers look like? (laughs) How do you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, the
1: lasers, that was my whole PhD. So super happy to talk about that more. And yes, everyone should definitely check out um, Nabia's show. She's a force of nature, so she'll be really fun to listen to. Um, so in terms of how our technology works, so one of the questions that you asked is, what is a bad cell? And it's a great question because it's extremely application dependent. Um, so in the case of reprogramming, where we're going from a patient sample to iPSCs. And in our case, the patient sample is blood cells. So we're starting with um, a blood sample. When you're going from blood cells to iPSCs, what constitutes a bad cell in that process is anything that's not going to become a very good iPSC. Um, and there are a number of ways to characterize iPSCs. One of the interesting challenges with iPSCs, because this field is relatively new and at an inflection point in terms of growth, there's going to be massive growth growth over the next few years. But because it's a relatively new field, because there isn't a single IPSC-based cell therapy product that has crossed the finish line in terms of getting regulatory approval, um, what that means is that the quality control guidelines for defining what an IPSC is, is set at this moment, but still subject to change or be refined over the next few years. Um, But at this point in time, a good definition of an IPSC is a cell type that can differentiate into any adult human cell in the body. And the way that we're defining that in an objective manner is with a qPCR scorecard. So there's a qPCR scorecard um, that was developed and published on by Alexander Meisner's group, and that's what we're using to objectively measure whether or not this cell is a good cell and whether or not it's actually an iPSC. So, the way we're training image guided machine learning algorithms to use that qPCR data to identify what's becoming a good iPSC and what's not becoming a good iPSC, and these are experiments that we have planned that are upcoming as soon as we're done building our automated research-grade development system. Um, So our plan there is to first laser remove all but one colony in a well. So when you're reprogramming to get iPSCs, you get multiple colonies in a well, and then some cells that are not part of colonies. So we're removing all of the cells that are not part of colonies, also removing all but one colony, allowing that colony to grow out over time, performing the qPCR scorecard on that colony and then encoding the time series image data that we took of the colony while it grew, um, as well as the qPCR scorecard data, encoding all of that data into vectors that get fed into the machine learning framework until the machine learning algorithm can tell us um, which colonies based on its time series images, which colonies are most likely to perform well on that qPCR scorecard. Uh, So that's how we're defining a good cell versus a bad cell in the context of reprogramming. But it might look different for other cell type applications. So we have some collaborators for whom we're not just creating iPSCs, we're also creating iPSC derived cells. And for that process, going from iPSCs to a therapeutic cell type, um, what might be a bad cell might be anything that's still an iPSC and has different differentiated fully because you don't want any still pluripotent cells left behind in the cell product when you transplant that into patients because that could be potentially tumorigenic. Um, so it's almost the opposite in terms of what is defined to be a good cell or a bad cell in that case. So very application dependent. and. I can give a little bit of more explanation in terms of how the laser works. So what's really cool about this laser technology is that we don't actually have the laser interacting directly with the cells. We have bubbles interacting with the cells. And you know, when I first started my PhD back in the day, when this field first started, you had lasers directly interacting with cells. So you were taking femtosecond lasers, which have incredibly high energy high-intensity laser pulses, and you were focusing them directly onto the cell membrane of each and every single cell. And so you would focus it onto one cell, um, emit a laser pulse, and then focus it onto the next cell. And as you can imagine, that's a very, it's a very cumbersome process to focus on each cell one at a time. Um, so part of what Nabiha's and my invention was during our PhDs that was novel was to make this laser-based process of interacting with cells more scalable. So what we did is we created a laser-activated substrate And it's basically a thin film of a laser-activated material that sits at the bottom of the cell culture surface. And then you can put laminin on top of that. You can put Matrigel on top of that. Or you can just directly culture the cells on top, depending on what cell type it is. So for our our iPSCs, we use laminin. um, But you have the laser-activated substrate. And then you have the laminin on top of that. And then you have the cells on top of that. And what the laser-activated substrate does is you can focus the laser directly on the substrate. And it absorbs the energy and the laser pulse from the photons and transfers it to the surrounding cell media in a way that generates a bubble. And you can precisely control the size of the bubble, actually. So if you have a, energy, a low energy laser pulse, you get a relatively small bubble, which you can use to poke holes in the cell membrane, deliver cargos into the cells. But if you have a relatively high energy laser pulse, you can completely destroy, kill, remove, ablate, lift off any unwanted cells. Um, And that's the context in which we're using it for IPSC reprogramming is large bubbles, relatively large bubbles. They're smaller than the size of the cell, but large bubbles to completely remove any unwanted cells. Um, So what the cells are interacting with is actually not, you know, the electro, um, it's actually not the energy of the laser pulse itself. It's interacting with the sheer stress generated by those bubbles that are generated by the laser. Um, And it's a really interesting process. And this is basically what we spent our entire PhDs working on was creating this technique of using lasers to interact with cells but in a way that was scalable and also safer because it's safer to use the bubble to interact with cells as opposed to the laser pulse directly because with the laser pulse directly you get high intensities that can rip off electrons um, and so you just don't want those unintended chemical effects
0: okay yeah got it yeah that's that's very cool so using the lasers to to generate the bubbles i sort of Directly, oh, sorry, uh, indirectly interacts with with these uh, these cells that you're trying to remove. And I, I guess this this uh, machine lear- learning algorithm that you're using to, uh, in conjunction with the cell imaging, is sort of like this uh, sort of general platform that just uh, allows you to remove whatever cells you want. Uh, so that so that's really interesting. Um, uh, so. What, what are the sort of like early applications that you're aiming for with uh, this technology at Selena?
1: So, this year, our team is entirely focused on automating the reprogramming process, going from blood cells to IPSCs. Um, and there are different ways of doing reprogramming. You can do reprogramming with episomal plasmid, Sendai virus, mRNA. We are developing protocols for all of those reprogramming techniques because, you know, we have some partners who prefer specific reprogramming modalities. Um, So that's what we're really working on this year. And then next year, so next year, actually, since we'll have the iPSC process up and running on our automated system, we aim to be providing uh, research grade patient-specific iPSCs to to autologous iPSC uh, cell therapy developers. But we'll also have more bandwidth to look at iPSC-derived cells and iPSC-derived tissues. And we haven't fully disclosed the cell types that we're planning to work on for that, for those end-to-end processes where we're also doing the differentiation. But I can say that right now, where there's a lot of activity um, in the autologous iPSC cell therapy space, all of the early activity almost was in the retinal space. Uh, Retinal pigment epithelial cells for age-related macular degeneration, which is the leading cause of blindness, among the elderly. And so actually the very first transplant ever performed using IPSCs was done by Masayo Takahashi, transplanting autologous IPSC derived retinal pigment epithelial cells into a patient suffering from AMD and um, Kapil Bharti, who is leading right now the first and the only clinical trial in the U.S., transplanting an autologous iPSC-derived cell type is also transplanting RPEs. So there's a ton of activity right now in the retinal space. And and there are a few reasons for that. One is that it's an an easy organ to access surgically, relatively easy to image and to assess, um, but also the therapeutic dosage that you need, the number of cells that you need to get a therapeutic effect is relatively small. So that's great for the early stages where we haven't fully scaled out to work with very large numbers of cells. Um, So the retina is very interesting. Dopaminergic neurons is also an area where there's a lot of activity. And dopaminergic neurons for Parkinson's is super exciting because they're is literally decades of fetal transplant data um, sh- demonstrating proof of concept that this cell type would have a therapeutic effect in patients suffering from Parkinson's, which is a terrible disease that you know really negatively affects quality of life. And there are multiple companies actually working on developing autologous iPSC-derived dopaminergic neurons to treat Parkinson's. And then we see also autologous activity in some other organs, especially the highly immunogenic organs like skin, where it's very difficult to do an allogeneic transplant, even between twins, from one twin to another twin, it's difficult to do an allogeneic transplant just because that organ is so highly immunogenic. Um, so those are the the kind of areas where you see a lot of activity going on right now in the autologous iPSC-based cell therapy space.
0: Yeah, uh, th- good point. Yeah. So this is really cool. Uh, the, you know, the cell trans- transplants were dry AMD, for instance. Yeah, because that's yeah, like age-related disease that uh, you know there's no really good therapies approved for it, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of companies trying to develop some sort of um, solution for that problem. And of course, yeah, Parkinson's disease that that's like a, a very, very like clear target that 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 uh, cell therapies could be very useful for. In fact, uh, you should definitely talk to uh, Jean Hebert at uh, uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine because he's all about um, you know doing sort of a uh, tissue replacement, like cell replacement, uh, in the brain, uh, to oh, treat, cool. uh I guess, um, yeah, age, uh, reverse, like trying to reverse aging in the brain. So, so that, yeah. that would be really cool if there's a way to get, um, these, that's amazing to him. Yeah. And yeah, you could use them, but, um, yeah, definitely. Uh, th- that's really cool. I think, um, what was I going to ask? Yeah. So, uh, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of like manufacturing and then like you provide cells for uh, sort of, of like in a partnership where either you you sell them to other companies but uh, are you guys also thinking about like uh, going to the clinic yourself or or is that something else <laughs>
1: You know, it's a it's a really good uh, it's a really good question that we've had a lot of discussions about. And right now, we're very focused on this partnership based business model. Um, so, kind of a CDMO plus business model, like a CDMO, but we have our own proprietary technology that can be used to optimize these different processes. Um, so, our business model is that we engage with the autologous iPSC derived cell therapy developers out there, and we provide either the patient specific iPSCs, or for the partners who are interested provide the patient-specific IPSC-derived cells. Um, But, you know, there are a couple programs, there are a number of really interesting programs that are in academic settings that have a ton of potential in terms of becoming an autologous IPSC-based cell therapy that solves an important problem for patients, Um, but that aren't necessarily being commercialized because they're in an academic setting and there are no plans to commercialize them. So for those that we see and that we think are a really strong fit for our platform, um, that our platform is especially well-suited to generate those cells, for those we are considering incubating them um, so that they eventually become commercialized, however that happens, whether it's by spinning it out or out-licensing the asset, Um, but that's also something that we're thinking about. The one thing that we're not doing is making a lot of these boxes and then putting them in other folks' labs um, just because this technology does require uh, a really specific skill set to operate it. So CDMO plus business model is what we're going for.
0: Okay, cool. Got it. Um, Okay. So uh, maybe we'll just like rewind a little bit, um, go back to like the beginning of the story. So um, maybe you can tell me a little bit about uh, what you were doing like right before you started I so like what was that sort of uh catalyst that made you decide okay i'm i'm gonna make this jump and start like a biotech company
1: Oh, yeah. You know, it's an interesting story because um, I had never planned to be an entrepreneur and neither had Nabiha. So we had been working together our entire PhDs, developing this technology that we really enjoyed developing, um, but we hadn't really considered entrepreneurship. And we were collaborating with some folks at Harvard. uh, So we were collaborating with George Church, who's obviously very entrepreneurial. Um, We were also collaborating with Derek Rossi, who's most well-known now for co-founding Moderna, so also very entrepreneurial. And and what we were collaborating with them um, on was using the laser to deliver gene editing tools and deliver membrane and permeable cargos into T cells and hematopoietic stem cells. So it was really fun work. Um, But what Derek Rossi said to Nabiha Because we were surprised, actually, when we saw that the laser technology could deliver cargos into suspension cells, because it wasn't something we had worked on. You know, We had developed this laser-activated substrate. When you think substrate, you naturally think adherent cells. So all of the experiments we had done so far up to that point were on adherent cells. And we just started experimenting with T cells and hematopoietic stem cells in the context of these collaborations. And so we were kind of surprised when we saw that we were able to successfully deliver these cargos into these suspension cells. Derek Rossi told Nabia, You have to commercialize this technology. This technology is going to change the field of biology. And we we're like, Whoa, <laughs> that's an incredible compliment. And it wasn't something we had really thought about. So, actually, in the very early days, we were both still in the lab. Um, we applied to pitch at a startup competition at Photonics West. And Photonics West is a, a conference that happens in San Francisco every year, um, very Popular conference for the optics and laser field, everyone goes, and so we had applied to pitch at this startup competition, and we didn 't even have a name for the startup at that point. We actually nabia created the Salino name invented that name for that startup like that was the impetus for even creating the name so obviously you know our thoughts around forming a startup were not very well fleshed out at this point, but we figured why not we 'll try it, and I felt really I was doing the pitch. And I felt really kind of like a fish out of water because it was clear when I was there that everyone else um, was older, was more experienced, had thought through this entrepreneurial path a lot more than we had. We kind of applied to pitch at this competition on a win. So I gave the pitch. You know, we were in the bottom or the top six finalists, I guess you would say. And I remember they were... Uh, listing the award winners and B and I were holding hands like really hoping to at least get third place third out of six we would have been very happy with because um, we started you know competing against hundreds so We were like oh third place would be amazing and then they called out the third place winner and it wasn't us and we were so disappointed at that point we just stopped holding hands we were like okay whatever we've lost um, and they called out the second place winner it wasn't us we weren't even really hoping for second place we didn't think it was within reach and then they called the first place winner out and it was us and that was remarkable for us because we were completely not expecting it. Um, so it was really a validating moment for us. And it was a moment that showed us, along with you know, Derek Rossi's support, that the technology that we were working on had a lot of interesting applications in industry. And so we decided then that we should commercialize this technology, bring it to industry. And, and it's interesting because when you're working on a platform technology coming out of your PhD lab. It's kind of like you're doing things a little bit backwards. You know, you have this solution and you're trying to backfit it to the right problem. And especially with the laser technology that we were working on, it was applicable to a much wider range of cell types than we originally thought. So in those early days, we were doing a lot of customer discovery. Nabia was going out, I think there was, you know, a couple months where she went out, talked to a hundred Individuals that we would consider potential customers or potential partners asked them what they thought we should work on. They all, you know, listed different cell types. I was in the lab doing the experiments on these different cell types to make sure that the laser technology actually could be applied to these different cell types. Um, but it took it took a lot of work to find the right product market fit. We actually decided to focus on autologous IPSCs early last year, and we incorporated back in 2017. So there was a long process for really finding. The perfect product market fit for us. Um, but that was what it looked like in the early days. And, you know, Nabia and I had worked together for a very long time. So it was obvious to us that we would be each other's co founders. But then we also found a third co founder, Matthias Wagner, who is a serial entrepreneur, has successfully fundraised for and co founded and run multiple laser optics based startups. So it was really amazing to have him on our team too. And actually in the early days, you know, before we got fund, um, before we got funding from any investors, he put in his own money to build a laser scanning device in his basement. (laughs) And so we had a laser scanning device that we were operating in his basement that was taking cells literally to his home's basement to do experiments. Um, So that was what it looked like in the very early days
0: yeah that's awesome yeah i hear a couple of different founders have these sort of stories of either creating a lab in their in their basement i've heard in their garage i've heard also someone creating a small lab in their closet so i I love this (laughs) happiness this is just like amazing right and um, yeah yeah yeah, another great thing is like uh what you mentioned about Nibia going out and talking to like a hundred different people right and i think this is really like a great lesson for other people who are thinking of you know starting a company like just talk to as many people as you can, right? Because uh, there's all these things that you don't really know, yeah. and the only way to get feedback is to actually, you know, talk to people. But I feel like sometimes this is difficult for for biotech because like people like to be secretive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's the most important
1: to, to thing. Balance. It's the absolute most important thing in any field. I have um, a really close friend of mine, one of my best friends, uh, recently decided to start his own startup, and not in biotech. Um, but in the optics field. And that was, the, that was the feedback I gave him. Like, you have this technology, you think it's really well suited for this one application, but you should just talk to 100 people and see what they think it should be applied to. Because when you're coming out of your PhD and you've worked on one specific thing for a long time, it's kind of hard to, to imagine what are all the other things that this could be useful for. And since you've come out of academia, you don't really know what are the big problems in industry that people need help with. And it was funny for us because, you know, we had been working on intracellular delivery Intracellular delivery, it worked very robustly with the laser technology, but from a physics perspective, it's kind of a com complicated thing to do, because you have to perfectly tune the laser energy to get that exact regime where you're creating enough bubbles in the cells to get delivery, but not so much that you're killing the cells. Um, So you really have to fine tune it. And then Nabia was talking to folks, and I was talking to folks, and they were saying, you know what, I would love to just get rid of the unwanted cells. And we're like, oh, we could definitely do that. That's a lot easier to do from a laser perspective, because it's just a threshold. Anything above this one laser energy is going to successfully remove cells. Um, So you don't have to fine-tune it quite as much and that's something that I think we wouldn't have thought about if we hadn't been talking to people just because it almost seemed it just seemed so trivial compared to what the what we had been working on that we thought was a really interesting problem uh, but it turns out it's actually like a really important bottleneck in a lot of cell processes just getting rid of unwanted cells if you have a cell population. And it makes sense when you think about it. If you have a cell population and just one potentially tumorigenic cell and you transplant that into a patient, that's, that's a disaster. Um, so it was really, really helpful for us to talk to folks in industry.
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, for other founders who are, you know, thinking about getting into biotech, maybe they're thinking, oh, you know, I have to be this older person, or I you know I have to be really established in the field before I can start a biotech, or maybe people are thinking, "Oh, I can't start a biotech because it's too expensive, or you know uh, I, I just don't have enough money, or uh, you know no investor is going to invest in me because you know I, I just have an idea um, maybe you do you have any like words of advice for for people who are looking to start companies are, are there any things that any hacks or Uh, tips that you would give them that would make it easier for them to actually, you know, get on this journey as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely think talking to as many people as possible, like you said, is the most important first step, um, because you really need to build that network of support. And I, I would advise talking to, I don't know, at least 10 different founders in a field that seems very relevant to yours, if not you know, is your field, just to get a sense of how they did it, how we did it. What I remember in the very early days is that before anyone really got any funding, they were kind of in um, competition mode. So there's this phase that a lot of the really early stage biotechs went through, where they were pitching at different competitions, like that Photonics West startup competition. Um, there was a you know Mass Bio program that we were involved in. There was a Mass Challenge program that we were involved in, and those competitions. So if you win those, you can get on the order of on the order of you know ones or tens of thousands of dollars, which is helpful for kind of getting your um, getting just set up and running. But it's also really helpful because it helps you refine your pitch. You make really important contacts at those sorts of organizations. Um, so you start to develop your support network. So that was a, a phase that we went through that was helpful for us before we actually got our fundraising. And I think another thing that was really important for us in the early days was establishing our co-founding team. So Nabia and myself, I mentioned it was clear that we were going to work together on this because we had worked together for so long though we pulled on Matthias as a co-founder and that was game-changing for us um, because he did have a lot of experience and also he's just a genius so that was a really good experience for us i feel like i've talked to some co-founders where or some founders where they're not sure if they want to bring on a co-founder because it's going to dilute their equity but the the advice that i've heard and that i thought was really helpful is you should want to give this person a big chunk of your equity. Like if you don't feel like, oh my gosh, I wanna give this person a big chunk of my equity because I know having them involved will increase the monetary value of my equity so much and will increase the value of the company and help the company get to where it needs to go. Like that's how much you should value this person. Um, You should want to share everything with them because you should be convinced that they are necessary to building out your company. But I think having a co-founding team is, is really helpful. I couldn't really imagine doing this on my own.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's, that's really good advice for finding a co-founder, right? Like, just, uh, uh, it should be a person that you want to give equity to. Yeah. So it should be a answer. person that you
1: like <laughs> want to give to because you yeah. know that them being involved is going to make everything so much more valuable. Exactly, um, exactly. It's like a good gut check, I think. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. So I think we're going to get to audience questions soon, but I just wanted okay. to ask like one more question before yeah. we open up for the audience. Um, so uh, is there anything that we can do, like people in the audience or anybody who's going to be listening later on, on, you know, podcasts or whatever, is, uh, is there anything that we can do to help Celino? Are you guys hiring? I know you guys recently just, you know, raised your, your seed round, which was like crazy. It was like $16 million you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, Coastal Ventures, HBC. Yeah. So I don't know about that, but, um, but yeah, if you're raising or looking for partnerships or just, just anything oh, that, yeah. um, that you, you could, look for, for help or anything like that. Yeah. I just, uh, open up. There's the always thing things. To,
1: to oh that. yeah. Always things. Okay. So first we are interested in talking to, I want to have talked to every single autologous IPSC derived cell therapy developer out there. I mean, it's a new field. So I think it's possible to have talked to a hundred percent of them. So please, if anyone is even thinking about developing an autologous IPSC based cell therapy, or knows someone who's thinking about developing an autologous IPSC based cell therapy, please don't hesitate to put them in touch with me. Um, So my email address is selinobio.com. So M-M-A-D-R-I-D at C-E-L-L-I-N-O-B-I-O.com. Um, so definitely interested in talking to anyone there and exploring collaboration opportunities. But we are hiring, I feel like we're always hiring these days. Um, one area that we're looking to hire in is on the biology side. So we're looking to hire a rock star biologist with mRNA expertise from industry. So if you or you know anyone who fits that profile File, please feel free to have them reach out. Info at Selenobio.com is also a good email to reach out to. Um, so definitely just interested in general and growing our network in this space too.
0: Okay, great. So you guys heard it from from Marina. Uh, if you know someone who's in the Autologous IPSC space, they're developing a therapy or something like that, definitely try and connect uh, her to them and uh if you're uh in biology and you are um know a lot about mrna therapies or (laughs) or that kind of stuff a rock star biologist definitely also reach out to marina so okay great um let's open up for some q a from the audience um if you want to ask a question just Raise your hand, I'll bring you up to the stage. Just FYI, again, um, if you come up to the stage to ask a question, it means you're consenting to us using your audio in the recording and also your profile photo in the video that we upload to YouTube. So um, while we're waiting for people to come up on stage, maybe I'll just ask maybe <laughs> a couple other yeah. questions that I had. I had so many other questions that I wanted yeah, to yeah. ask. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. So. Uh, in the early days of the company, right? Yes. Uh, one question that I, I like to ask is just like, how much does it actually cost to start a company, <laughs> right? Because th- these, this is kind of like a jump and no, not a lot of people like uh, build in public, in biotech for, for whatever reason. But uh, yeah, I, I just like to know like, <laughs> if I wanted to start a company, like how much money should I, should I have in the bank?
1: Ooh, that's, um, so that's a tough question because we didn't really have, like Nabia and myself, You know, we were poor grad students. We didn't have any money in the bank when we first started. So we were very much in this mode of going to competitions and pitching and trying to figure out how to get our first fundraising in. Um, Matias did spend some of his own money on building that first laser scanning system. I think that was about $50,000. So that's one thing is, how much money you need to get started is going to be kind of dependent on what your experiments look like. Um, but in biology, just experimental reagents can run you on the order of, a, you know, $10,000 a month. And and then rent, renting out bio lab spaces is also pretty expensive. So in the early days, for a biotech, you're almost always going to be looking for some um, VC funding. But before that happens, I would just recommend checking out some of the competitions that are out there. You can get, for example, there's this uh, biology lab space called Lab Central in, um, in Cambridge and they offer a golden ticket, which means that you can pitch your startup idea and if you win, you get free lab space for an entire year. And it's a, basically a bench that up to two people can work at. And I, I think the bench normally costs something like $5,000 a month. Um, so these are the kind of things that I would look into to to try to save money in the early days.
0: Okay, noted. Yeah, I've heard a lot about these golden tickets at, at different lab spaces like NBC also has it and, and it's kind of like uh, the Willy Wonka competition, but way better. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <very> cool. <laughs> yeah. They're
1: so helpful in the early days. We got a golden ticket from Novo Nordisk. And, you know, it's helpful for a few reasons, because for us, since we got the golden ticket from Novo Nordisk, that's also given us us um, the ability to interact and engage with the Novo Nordisk team. So we have regular meetings with their scientific team and with their business team. And that's a huge opportunity for us because they're the leading big pharma company and um, stem cell derived therapy development. So I think, like, through doing these competitions, you get value from things like access to lab space, and you get some, you know, early small amounts of funding. But you also build really strong networks in the process.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I'll probably try and come up with a list of all these these competitions and post them somewhere. Yeah,
1: that's a good idea. It'd be a good resource for
0: everyone. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. Okay. Um, Let's see. Uh, We have some people up on stage. So, uh, Michael, uh, can you introduce yourself and uh, you can ask your question?
2: Uh, Hey, my name is Michael. Um, I studied biotechnology in school. And I was just curious um, about like, uh, so you guys, you use uh, what? I think you use uh, skin cells, right? And you convert those into iPSCs, right?
1: So we actually start with blood cells. But yeah, skin cells is a really common way of doing it, too
2: hmm Uh so so do you um by converting the cells back, you're you're converting the epigenome um to a certain state. Um would you consider the cells to be, you know, like the hay flick to be affected by that? Um, you know, and like the telomeres and things like that? Like I'm curious if you guys are considering the age the age of the cells to be like, you know, younger and like if you're using a, a patient that's like let's say forty-five and you're using patients
3: yeah. that's like
2: twenty. Um, is there, uh, are, are those cells like more along the Hayflick limit?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question that I don't know the answer to. Um, I can say that in terms of generating IPSCs, there is some some variability that's dependent on on the age of the donor, which has been kind of interesting to see. It's actually one of the reasons why we're starting with blood cells instead of the fibroblasts. With the fibroblasts, you see a lot more a lot more variability and quality that's associated with age because those cells are, you know, exposed to UV radiation over the, over the patient's lifetime. Um, but that's a really interesting question that I don't have the answer to. All
0: right, thanks. Okay, cool. Um, Ethan, welcome to the stage. Uh, you can introduce yourself and uh, ask your question. Nice to see you here.
3: Thanks Nathan. Uh, hi Marina. I've been enjoying listening to this and i um, actually going to hang out with Nabia. I think next week and or two weeks in Boston. Uh, oh, cool. So super cool to hear about uh, all the things that you've done. I had just a question about the fundraising side of things. You know, we yes. hear about like biotech VCs versus tech VCs and yeah. clearly you have sort of the, the tech VCs locked down. Yes. And I'm one, and of course I'm sure the tech VCs, you know, all VC and close. So they're all like, well, we're bio too. Right. But I mean, the atlases <laughs> and the third rocks and the flagship and the pioneer, like, did you even try the kind of Kendall, squ- Kendall Square, you know, circuit? Uh, or did you just realize that they probably were going to, they probably have a certain type of founding team and management team in mind. And maybe you just, you know, you just don't fit that bill. And I'm just wondering, is that, was that even true? Or or did you consider biotech VCs in the classical sense? And, and this, did it just, just get better offers from, from the West Coast?
1: You know, we did actually a bit in the beginning, what we saw um, even beyond just, you know, con- like thoughts regarding founding team, one of the things we saw was that the more traditional biotech VCs really preferred for you to have one disease indication in mind and to be pursuing that disease indication, hundred percent. and in the early days we thought about doing that. So we went through some phases where we thought, Oh, the platform technology could be really well suited to this one indication or another, but we decided that we wanted to keep it as a platform technology because we saw that there was a lot of potential to address more than just one disease indication. And so we didn't really want to like narrow, our sites on just one thing. And that was, I think, a big part of the reason why we ended up meshing really well with the tech VCs is because they were really interested in
0: that platform play.
3: Cool. Awesome. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Great. Thanks for the question, Ethan. And um, Michael, hey, nice to see you here too. Uh, Maybe you can introduce yourself and uh, ask your question.
2: Hey there. Uh, I'm Michael Taddonner. I'm a postdoc at City of Hope. I do a lot of cell culture and tissue engineering stuff. So when you were describing your application, your um, technology, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, facts, where if you're trying to separate yeah. out like yeah. good cells and bad cells from iPSC culture, well, why don't you just flow them? So um, could you like compare how your stuff um, fares versus like a real standard technique like that?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really good comparison because that's actually how I describe it sometimes. Um, for folks who are really familiar with facts, I like to say what we're doing with the laser is basically 2D adherence cell sorting. Um, but part of the reason that we like to be able to do it that way is because the cells that you want to keep get to stay in culture and they don't get disturbed and they don't get stressed the way they would if you were sending the entire cell population through a fax machine. And for IPSCs, you know, that's kind of important, but for some cell types, it's extremely critical because there are some cell types like neurons, um, basically the very long stretched out cell types, it's extremely stressful for them to go through that fax process. And so it would be better to be able to remove them by using a laser or a technology that only affects the unwanted cells and leaves the cells that you want behind unstressed uh, where they stay. And then the other advantage of being able to keep them on the substrate the entire time, at least in the case of iPSC reprogramming is that we can image them, we can do time series continuous imaging. So one of the things that we're doing, we've set up a database so that we can track individual cells from beginning to end. And you just learn a lot of information that way. There's a lot of data that gets collected um, about, you know, the time series and the lifetime progression of that cell that you would be giving up if you were having to rip them off the substrate, send them to a fax machine and then put them back down.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, I know that fact can be brutal for a lot of cell populations. Um, but so does your tech, does a bubble technique uh, leave uh, cell debris from cells that you're removing from culture, or does it just like remove them intact?
1: Uh, So this is an interesting question, too. We haven't experimented with removing them intact yet. It's something that we've talked about as a team and think should be, from a physics perspective, should be theoretically possible. Right now, we're lysing the cells. So we do have to wash away everything right away um, to make sure that there's no cell debris left behind that could affect the cells that you're trying to leave uh, unaffected. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Okay, so I have a question, um, if nobody else has one. But, um, yeah, I I remember Nipia was talking about how you guys had issues with your tech transfer office. And I was wondering if you could, like, maybe share a little bit about that that story um, behind that.
1: Oh, sure. (laughs) So, so with the tech transfer offices, um, it's just it's a negotiation to license anything. And so that's something that you kind of have to be prepared for going into it. Um, What I have noticed now, actually, like, since those early days i've found tech transfer ho- offices to be super helpful for engaging with professors who maybe don't check their emails as often so these days most of my interactions with tech transfer offices is to reach out to them and say hey i really want to talk to this one professor um, they didn't respond to my cold email but i'm interested in their technology can you put me in touch with them so so these days my interactions are very positive and helpful <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> okay on. okay um so I had another question. So uh, in terms of uh, every cell or sorry, every human, every cell and then maybe every yeah. tissue. So these sort of uh, moonshot goals, what do you think is like the hardest uh, tissue that that will be like um, the hardest that, that to engineer or to create like a, a regenerative cell therapy for?
1: Oh, you know, it's it's tough to say because different tissues are difficult in different ways. Um, so let me th- see if I can think of an example. So, for example, hair follicles are extremely complex. They're almost like mini organs. And you need to have multiple cell types in the right location interacting with each other at the right time to get this functional hair follicle that forms on a cyclical basis. Um, So super complicated structurally too, because you also need everything to be oriented in the right direction. A hair follicle doesn't do any good unless it's oriented outward from the skin. Um, So very structurally complex tissue. But then if you look at the liver, the liver is not super structurally complex. If you cut the liver in half, one half looks like the other half, it's relatively homogenous. But it is very complicated in terms of the cell types you need. And those individual cell types happen to be particularly difficult to generate from IPSC-derived protocols. Um, So different tissues are, are complex in different ways. And then if you look at the retina, you know, retinal pigment epithelial cells are actually relatively easy to differentiate. The retinal pigment epithelial cell protocols that exist out there are super robust. But if you wanted to create an entire retina, you would have to do layers and you would have to stack the retinal pigment epithelial cells under photoreceptors and photoreceptors are a little bit harder to make. And also with photoreceptors, you have rods and cones and they need to be oriented relative to each other in a specific spatial pattern. And then on top of that, you would need retinal ganglion cells. So there are certain tissues, there are a lot of tissues that are complex for different reasons, I guess is the answer I would give.
0: Okay, great, great. Yeah. Um, I guess my other a question that, that I wanted to ask was about uh, this uh, multidisciplinary team that you have. Yeah. So are, are there any sort of like challenges that are more specific to Celino um, that's kind of like, you know, because you guys are a biotech company, but also you have like a lot of aspects of like deep tech with like, you know, AI and robotics and stuff like that. So maybe you can speak to to these sort of challenges.
1: Oh, yeah. So I think, you know, one challenge with having a multidisciplinary team is just communication, um, because you need everyone to be able to explain what they're working on to everyone else in a way that's easy to understand. But they're explaining this area that they have a ton of expertise in to someone who's not a subject matter expert. So I think building those inter-team communication skills can be really challenging. And there are certain fields that are really used to presenting. So, you know, I was talking to one of our biologists and she was saying in biology, you're used to giving PowerPoint presentations on a regular basis. So you're used to kind of setting up the story for what you're working on. But for software engineering, you don't see that as often. So it's kind of like a different way of talking about what you're working on. Um, So I think communication is is kind of a challenge um, like you have to make sure that you hire folks who are going to be good at communicating their area of expertise to people who aren't subject matter experts. Um, and so they have to be comfortable using analogies and things like that and setting the context really well.
0: Okay, got it. Cool. Uh, oh, we have some other people who want to ask questions. But before we let uh, Ben ask his question, we have Jean Hebert in the room. <laughs> we. we mentioned before oh, cool. and uh, so that's really cool. I, I should definitely connect you two yeah but, um, I love that. so so John Hubert is working on um, tissue replacement in the brain, so basically um as a way to reverse aging, right so basically, if you can progressively replace um all the different cell types in the brain then then you don't have to actually know why all of these like pathologies of you know alzheimer's disease or parkinson's cool. disease uh why they happen you can just uh, do it so right now he's trying to create uh well he's developing this therapy and this technique uh first in mice but i wonder if if that's uh something that is applicable here for for Selena, or do you guys only like focus on on uh i guess human cells <laughs>
1: Oh, I think so that's really interesting. I mean, right now, we are only focused on human cells and cell therapy development. Um, but this is definitely something that we could be interested in for the future. Uh, especially because I mentioned before, the platform is relatively cell type agnostic. So that is something we could work on. Um, it sounds interesting. I'd love to learn more, at least.
0: Okay, sounds okay. good. Yeah. Okay. Um, ben, uh, welcome to the stage. Um, maybe you can ask your question. there. Uh,
4: Hi, thanks, Nathan. Um, hi, Marina. Uh, congratulations hi. on the company. Um, I have a sort of a specific question regarding intellectual property. Uh, yes. I noticed that uh, the three, at least two co-founders. I was able to take a quick look at the website for selino Yes. I'm guessing that you, uh, you guys were classmates, if you will, from the uh, DAS. Now it's what it called, so it's a new college now. It used to be the Department of Applied uh, Sciences or But you guys were classmates, right?
1: Um. Yeah. So Nabiha's PhD was in uh physics, and mine was in applied physics. Um. Okay, so we it. were both. Yeah. Yeah.
4: So so presumably you guys started the company while uh you were in the PhD program before you even finished, uh, in terms of timing, correct? Two thousand seventeen versus two thousand
1: eighteen. Yeah. So two thousand seventeen. I was still a PhD student at the time. Uh, Nabiha was not, though.
4: Got it. Got it. So yeah. my question is that is the is the IP uh, sort of uh, derived from uh, uh, Harvard invention? In other words, there would be a licensing agreement. Uh, the, the original IP was, was filed uh, in the name of Harvard by the technology transfer office. And then uh, Selena would be the exclusive licensee and, and, and uh, utilizing, commercializing the technology.
1: So in our specific case, that's not what happened. Uh, just because the technology that we ended up developing for industry applications is is different from what we were doing during our PhD. So the laser activated substrate that we're using is different. The laser system that we're specifically using is quite different. Um, so in our case, it wasn't. But there are a lot of situations where that is the case, where you would, you would license the IP out of the academic institution and then use that to build the startup. Um, so what we did is... We have a different system, a different technology that works really well. And we filed some new IP around that.
4: That's perfect. That's perfect. And I remember I came in late. I remember Nathan asked a question regarding initial funding, Uh, the $60 million. Was that the the first venture funding or there was funding previous to that, uh, to the January 2021 funding that was able to, you'll be able to use that for, say, IP filing or product development?
1: Yeah, yeah, there was definitely a smaller round that happened before that, um, $4 million. And in the early days, you know, when we were trying to to save money, uh, what we would do in terms of IP filing is we would file provisionals because they have the date marked on them. So you can kind of like secure your spot that you thought of this idea at this time. So anything that gets filed afterwards, um, you know, it wouldn't work out because you had secured that date. And it costs a lot less. I think it costs, I forget what it was, around $100 or $150 to file a provisional. So we filed a lot of provisionals in the early days when we didn't want to spend a ton of, of funding filing full patents.
4: I'm sorry, so presumably that uh, you drafted those provision applications yourselves and then filed it under the PTO's provision patent application system, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. We filed, um, so we would draft the text and also the figures ourselves. We did a lot of that in the early days.
4: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so interesting. Um, in my work, I actually, I work with startups, uh, I have heard that sentiment from my client, uh, which is the thinking that provision applications tend to be a easier way or cheaper way before you get official sort of real funding from venture capitalists. Uh, the only thought I, I would share here with the, with the rest of the rooms is that uh, if you are in a competitive field, then the priority that your provision application Uh, was supposed to be to be established Uh, if it's not drafted correctly you may not be able to rely on that priority so the obviously it's a catch-22 and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to share i wanted to ask you just so i can share some experience of yours with my clients which is uh, how are you able to uh, get a a quality patent application filed protecting the priority date uh, without sacrificing uh, you know any of the future uh, you know uh, features if you will the claims but uh, it sounds like you guys did it yourself. And once you were able to get the $4 million or whatever funding, that you were able to engage uh, outside council to draft uh, sort of the utility patent application. Uh, that, that's my understanding.
1: Yeah. And, you know, once the deadlines rolled around, there were some provisionals that we realized we didn't need to file full patents on anymore because we weren't as interested in the idea as we originally thought. Um, but I would also think if you were, so if I would also think that if you're interested in having, an IP lawyer look at the provisional to make sure that it was drafted in a way that really protected your priority date, that it would still probably be more cost effective for the lawyer to look at a provisional than to file a full patent.
4: All right. Thank you. Good Good luck.
0: Okay. Thank you for those questions, Ben. Uh, That was very interesting because I feel like, you know, the whole IP strategy side of, you know, so biotech that's something that not a lot of you know founders are familiar with when they start so yeah thank you for those questions ben
1: yeah it was very new to us i didn't even know about provisionals um during my phd it was just not something that we really learned about so it was interesting
0: awesome awesome okay so um we have another person on the stage uh Aishwarya. um maybe you can introduce yourself i'm uh, sorry if i mispronounced your name and uh you can ask your question
5: Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for hosting the room and thanks, Marina. It's been great. Um, I should say that I had to step out some point, uh, 20 minutes into the room and got back again. So I might've missed something and I hope I'm not repeating myself. Oh, no worries. Yeah, Yeah. by way of introduction, I'm a computational scientist. I'm at the Broad Institute and I recently worked, I just finished a large study characterizing reproducibility of kidney organoids uh, by using single cell transcriptomics. And it was very interesting that these organoids, which we studied from four different IPSC lines, were at best first trimester in terms of aging um, (laughs) or, you know, the age. And even then, like the tissue microenvironment was no way close to what a kidney would be. And like if there were no blood vessels, um, no immune cells, and uh, even in terms of like the complexity of the different cell types, we were not close. So I was going to ask about maybe what your first reached tissue would be, but I think maybe you were, I mean, it sounded like maybe retina would be one of the things you're going after, or maybe at this point, you're just looking into individual cell types.
1: Yeah, so so at this point, you know, we haven't fully disclosed the um, the cell types that were planning to work on for the upcoming series A. But there's, I mentioned retina because there's a ton of activity in the autologous iPSC cell therapy space for retina um, and a ton also for dopaminergic neurons. So, you know, could totally anticipate that we would have partners in those areas that have differentiation protocols that they want us to put on our platform. Um, But yeah, I've heard that the kidney is one of those cell or organs that's really, really difficult to actually differentiate properly. So I've been wondering if there's interesting technologies that could be applied to that. So there was one phase of the company where we were working on machine learning algorithms that looked at single cell RNA-seq and from the single cell RNA-seq tried to predict which genes would have to be turned on or off to get to a certain cell type. Um, And then we were turning those genes on and off by delivering CRISPR activators or CRISPR inhibitors into the cells. Um, so, So I wonder if for some of these hard, you know, difficult to differentiate cell types, if it would make sense to do something using CRISPR activators or CRISPR inhibitors instead of like small molecule differentiation protocols.
5: Uh, that's a great point. Um, I should say that I was more of the computational person on the Yeah, team. yeah, fair. Um, and we <laughs> yeah. used, we used like existing protocols at that time. And I don't think they used either small molecules or CRISPR. It was more like growth factor and uh, oh, hormone mediated okay. yeah. uh, kidney differentiation. Um that being said i think there is a group in australia melissa little and they've looked yeah. into developing these different lines by crispring out specific uh, growth factors and developmental factors yeah and there's another group in japan which is trying to grow so the kidney like you said is like second in complexity only to the brain and uh one of the issues with um trying to grow a kidney on on the bench is that you have this tree morphology of the collecting ducts. There are all these different tubes in the part of the excretory system. And so they're doing doing it in two different, like in two separate culture systems. So they grow part of the kidney in one system and part in the other. And after a certain level of differentiation, they try to bring them together uh, to see if you can form a full organ. Uh, so oh, that's, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's partially what I've heard of, uh, but I am also happy to chat later. Like I have, a, you know, we have a ton of single cell data and it would be interesting to dig a little deeper, uh, than what we did in the paper to see if there are specific signaling pathways. We definitely saw that there are also outlier cells, so we had neuron like cells for yeah. pretty early in the differentiation. And so oh, just identifying those signalings. And so we identified a few pathways which could potentially be inhibited um, huh. Yeah, along the differentiation. So I think that's that's something I, you know, if I ever had free time, I would love to look into <laughs> <Yes>. more. Yeah.
1: <laughs> time I feel is like the biggest challenge for everything that we're doing. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. I need to look into kidney. I wonder um, like what are the right autologous ipsc based indications there um but yeah we'd be happy to connect offline
5: and talk more sounds great thank you
0: great thank you for your question ashwarya um okay so uh, it's 5:05 now i want to be mindful of marina's time so Thank you again, uh, Marina, for coming on the show. It was an incredible conversation. Lots of great tips uh, about just like entrepreneurships, like tactical things. Also just like just general uh, observations. And it's it great just learning about Seleno. I, I think it's a really promising platform. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best uh, going forward with, uh, with your mission.
1: Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you.
0: Great, great. Yes, the pleasure was all ours. Okay. So, uh, I guess that wraps up our show. Uh, just, uh, some housekeeping next week, uh, same time we're going to be hosting Sebastian Brunemeyer. Um, Sebastian is a uh, VC who was formerly at Apollo health ventures, one of the biggest longevity biotech investors. Um, also, uh, he was a co-founder of Cambrian biopharma and, um, and also an advisor to a a lot of different uh, longevity companies. So definitely don't miss that. He's like one of the brightest minds in longevity biotech. So with that, uh, I guess we'll just wrap it up here. And thanks again, Marina. It's been great.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day.
4: All right, you too. Take care. All right, take care everyone. Bye-bye.